from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. For years, a group of Missouri lawmakers have been trying to find a way to pass a tax credit incentive for K-12 scholarships, which they believe could provide a better opportunity for kids that live in areas with underperforming schools. State Representative Bill Cristofanelli was the sponsor of a measure that finally broke the decades-long logjam. And the St. Charles County Republican joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to explain what empowerment scholarship accounts are and respond to critics who think they're a bad idea. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining us in studio, he is the representative for Missouri's 105th House District and a recent graduate of Washington University Law School. Is that yes, correct? That is correct. Uh, Phil Cristofanelli is here. By, by the way, did you know that you are now part, assuming that you passed the bar, because I don't think you've taken the bar exam yet. End of July. Uh, you are part of an illustrious group of Missouri House members that got their law degree while serving in the House. That includes former state representative Stephen Weber, former state representative Chris Kelly, former representative and senator Ken Jacob, and and most notably... Former Governor Warren Hearns. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. And Steve Carroll. And Steve Carroll as well. Yes. How, how exactly did you do that without going crazy? <laughs> well, uh, that that seems to be a loaded question. I don't know that I did, but uh, <laughs> it certainly took a lot of planning. You had to plan everything out in advance. Uh, you had to uh, pretty much give up your entire social life for three years and uh, really had to, to knuckle down and, and juggle a lot of chainsaws. But uh, it all worked out in the end, and uh, I'm glad I did it. Well, congratulations on that accomplishment. But we're not here to talk about your multitasking. Sure. We're here to talk about um, a couple of bills that you sponsored that made it through the legislative process, as well as the ongoing and upcoming special sessions. So the thing that I wanted to talk with you about first is empowerment scholarship accounts, which are known as ESAs. We're going to refer them to as ESAs throughout uh, the rest of the program. Um, this is an idea that has been proposed by primarily Republicans, but it's been supported by some Democrats for decades. In fact, I think when he was a senator, Peter Kinder had an, a similar idea to this. Explain what the idea actually is and, and what it's trying to accomplish. Sure. Uh, ESA stands for Empowerment Scholarship uh, Accounts. And so what those are, are they are grants to students uh, who qualify under certain criteria that is laid out in the bill. And uh, it allows those students to use that grant for a number of approved educational expenses. The most uh, common expense for an empowerment scholarship account is private school tuition, but it could also be used for extra tutoring. It could be used for extracurricular activities, summer programs, uh, transportation, school supplies, whatever it takes to get that kid 
the education that will allow them to uh, realize their full potential. Um, as you mentioned, that this is an idea that has been around for some time. Uh, it exists in one form or another in over 26 states. I think uh, you know there's close to three or four other states that passed a, a similar program this year, uh, and it has been introduced in the state of Missouri for well over 15 years, uh, but this was finally the year that we made it happen. So I want to walk through how this would actually work. Let's just say that I am a multi-multi-billionaire, and I wanted to donate $10 million to a approved educational assistance organization. So how, how, how would that benefit me under this plan? Let's, I'm just using the $10 million mark as kind of a, a, a round number to understand like what, how much my tax liability would be reduced. Sure. Uh, and uh, let's be clear, it's not really a benefit to the donor, uh, other than, uh, you know, they, they feel good about the fact that they helped out uh, an education assistance organization. Um, the donor ends up net neutral. Uh, so what they do is if you uh, want to donate, I think you said $10 million, you first would have to have a state tax liability uh, on your state income tax of $20 million, which almost no one does. But no, no. We'll just take this hypothetical. Uh, and uh, if you donated that $10 million to an EAO, uh, you would be granted a tax credit of up to uh, of uh, $10 million, which is uh, 50% of your overall tax liability to the state. Uh, and so when you pay your Missouri income taxes the next year, uh, you would pay, um, you have a $20 million obligation, you'd pay your 10 and then you'd use your credit for the other 10. So you're still out $20 million, but uh, you essentially were able to dedicate 10 of that $20 million to an EAO for the purpose of helping kids. What is the cap for the state? Because I know that that was a... a, a source of contention as this was going through the process. Sure. Uh, yeah. And it, it changed throughout uh, the process. Uh, and we could get into the details of, of how there were two bills ultimately that, that created the ESA program. But um, if uh, assuming both uh, House Bill 349 and Senate Bill 86 are signed, the cap will be in the first year $25 million uh, in tax credits that could be issued. And that is allowed to grow at the rate of inflation up to $50 million uh, at, at, for a total cap of $50 million at the at the fullness of the program. When would, when would you get to that $50 million cap? I think that could be years before we get sure. there. Yeah, I was actually looking at the fiscal note. Um, they just sent me one this morning, and uh, it's like 2050 before we ever – Hit the hit the full cap, which I, hopefully we're still both still alive by then. But you know, yeah, I'm planning to be. I, I'm planning to be too. <laughs> so I I, I want I know that the biggest argument against this idea, and it, and it's been a bipartisan. There's been bipartisan support for this idea, but also bipartisan opposition. Is the opponents feel like this is a backdoor way of siphoning away money from public schools, which I think you heard over and over again during debate. So I want you to address that argument. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's false because uh, the, the $25 million is going to come out of general revenue, and uh, education is just a portion of our budget, It's and uh, that $25 million was in no way uh, earmarked for education. Education in our current budget is going to be fully funded. Just It's going to get more money than it did the year previous, so there's, there's no evidence to suggest that $25 million was going there and then now is not. But also, we put in a number of sweeteners in the bill 
for the public school community. Uh, the most notable one was the transportation trigger. Uh, the state historically has underfunded its obligation to transportation in uh, mostly rural school districts, but also some urban ones. Uh, and uh, we said that in order for the scholarships to take effect uh, every year, uh, we need to hit at least 40% of our transportation uh, target. And, and uh, in the governor's last budget, I think we started out at 32. And as a result of this le legislation, we've brought that up to 40 for a total investment of $18 million more in school transportation than uh, the year previous. Another thing we did is we held public schools harmless uh, for five years from the start of the program. So uh, if you have a, a kid in your public school that leaves under an, e uh, an education scholarship, uh, for a private school, we're going to still let the public schools count that kid in their uh, average daily attendance numbers, and uh, that would uh, make sure that they will not lose any money as a as a result of that kid's absence, even though they no longer have the obligation to, to educate that student. Another aspect of this bill that I think was a source of controversy was about where it would actually take effect and how more rural areas it wouldn't apply. Can you kind of walk us through that part of the bill? Sure. So in order to be a qualified student that can receive a scholarship, uh, you have to be a uh, resident of a first-class charter county or a city with a population of greater than 30,000, uh, which is uh, most of the students in this state, but does leave out uh, some some very small uh, rural parts of the state as far as population goes. I want to say like 70% of the state is covered under the ESA bill. Uh, and there are, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, a lot of the um, rural school districts have uh, very small schools uh, that um, if they lose, you know, uh, you know, even five to ten students, uh, it could be very difficult for those those schools to remain in operation, and that's just not the case uh, in your more urban environments. And also in uh, rural Missouri, a lot of times, other than the the local public school, there just simply isn't anywhere else to go. Um, a lot of times, there's no no uh, reliable broadband, so you can't really do uh, online learning, and there's not a lot of private schools out there because there's not enough population density. And so uh, the, the goal of the, the, the start of this program is to target the scholarships where they could be the most useful, and that is our, our highly populated urban centers. Uh, and, uh, you know, like all these programs across the state, uh, they start uh, small and narrowly defined, and after people see the success of the program, uh, they almost always become uh, politically popular and expand. That's what we've seen in every state where they've been introduced. So I would look at this as just a start. Uh, it's certainly not one that, that everybody was happy about, but it was one that we could finally get to a, a, a compromise agreement on. Indeed, there were opponents of this bill that were very unhappy that some of the rural areas were carved out. Um, I think that they accused people like you of doing this so it would get votes of rural legislators that don't like this idea. State Representative Rachel Prouty, who represents uh, North St. Louis County, said, quote, if you think this bill does not help your community, just imagine what it may do to mine. Can you address that criticism that this was done as a political reason to get the bill passed and not for the reasons that you just mentioned. 
Sure. And I mean, there is certainly compromises that happen throughout the legislative process, and it's not uncommon for bills to be targeted to particular areas. Um, I would say that as a, as a guy from St. Charles, I want as much of this $25 million going to my district as possible. Uh, and quite frankly, if they put all $25 million in St. Charles, uh, I'd be happy with that. But, you know, we compromised and we broadened it, broadened it to uh, a greater part of the state. And um, it is my belief, like I mentioned before, that ultimately this will be a statewide program because it is going to be very successful. And uh, in the meantime, uh, I think that uh, anybody who gets, gets one of these scholarships is going to be happy with it, and they're going to want to see the program expand. Let's talk about other legislation that you successfully pushed across the finish line. This, this, I think this is actually multiple bills dealing with HIV, both the medication and the laws surrounding it. Can you get, kind of talk about why you decided to sponsor or support some of these ideas and what do you think it will do in this, this area of policy? Sure. Uh, Missouri has been cited as a, a growing area of concern on a national level for our rising HIV rates. Uh, we are uh, ranked seventh in the country with uh, increased infections. Um, and uh, it's, it's unfortunate because there are so many uh, advancements in science that have occurred that can help uh, reduce the, uh, the spread of, of this disease. Uh, we don't currently have a cure to HIV, but uh, we, we do have a way to uh, ensure that people do not become infected. And I believe if we implement those strategies over time, we can end HIV in our lifetime. Uh, and so uh, we, I was happy to sponsor uh, two pieces of legislation, which ultimately became law this year. Um, and uh, the, the first one allows uh, what's known as post-exposure prophylaxis to uh, be uh, distributed over the counter by a pharmacist without a prescription. And what post-exposure prophylaxis is, is if you have been exposed or believe you have been exposed to the HIV virus, if you take this drug within 72 hours, uh, you can almost guarantee that you will not become infected with HIV. So it's really a, a miraculous drug, uh, but uh, people can't always see their physician within 72 hours. And so um, we expanded the scope of practice of pharmacists uh, to be able to dispense this life-saving medication. And Missouri became the third state in the nation after uh, California and Colorado to take this course. So I'm really proud of that uh, particular bill. And then we had another piece of legislation uh, which modernized our, our HIV criminal code. Um, our, our criminal code was uh, based off of really uh, a number of bad assumptions that were made. Uh, it, it was made based off of the best science of the time, but this was in the 70s and 80s when a lot of these bills were written. And uh, there were two underlying premises um, that, that were wrong uh, that, that these laws were, were based on. The first was that HIV was a death sentence. And at, at the time, if you uh, did contract HIV, uh, your ex life expectancy was relatively low. Uh, but that has changed dramatically. Now, uh, under our, our modern medical regime, you can live a long and healthy life uh, from, while being HIV positive uh, because we have medications that can reduce your uh, viral load essentially down to an undetectable level. Uh, and so um, with that assumption built into our criminal code, there were uh, a lot of laws baked into the books where if you 
uh, were HIV positive and engaged in certain activities, uh, be it violence or or even um, uh, knowing transmission of the virus to another person, you were charged with essentially an A felony, which is the same that we give for premeditated murder, which is out of state, out of step with what virtually every other state in the country uh, has done. Uh, and so we we modified those to make them more in line with what um, the the modern penal code would recommend for those type of crimes. The other thing we did is we got rid of all the um, crimes that related to uh, activities that actually could not transmit the virus. So, for instance, if, if you were HIV positive and you spit on another person, uh, you could be criminally charged with very severe penalties. But now we know that saliva does not transmit HIV, and so there's really no purpose to criminalize uh, that type of activity any more than you would uh, a basic uh, assault or battery based off of spitting. And so we changed all that uh, to accord with all what we know now about the virus. And uh, I think it'll make a big difference in uh, alleviating the stigma around getting tested and knowing your status. A couple of questions. Let's start with the first bill. Let's just say that I find out within 24 hours that I may have been exposed to HIV. How would how would would I just be able to go into a Walgreens, go up to a pharmacy counter, and say, "Can I get this drug?" Like, is that is is it as simple as that, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, it's about as simple as that. The pharmacist is going to ask you some questions, some screening questions, to to make sure that um, one that that you engaged in an activity that actually had a tra- uh, a potential for transmission. Because uh, like I mentioned, uh, not, not every exposure to someone who is HIV positive is an exposure that could potentially transmit the virus. So there's going to be some screening there. There's also going to be some screening for contraindicated medications and underlying conditions where you might not want to take this particular medication. Uh, and um, the way it's structured is the, the physician or the uh, pharmacist is going to be operating under a protocol that is uh, approved by a a licensed physician. And so it's very similar to how people are getting uh, vaccines from their pharmacists currently. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, it will be as easy as you're going to walk into the Walgreens. You're probably going to be privately screened to make sure that uh, there's no problems. But after that, uh, you'll be able to access the the medication right away. For the second bill, You mentioned that before your bill passed, it was an A felony if you knowingly transmitted uh, HIV to someone. Did it go down to like a misdemeanor? Is it no, a lower? Uh, is it a lower felony? Like what? What would be the punishment if you if you did that and you were found guilty? It's of that a now? C felony now, okay. um, and uh, you know that's still a very serious crime that uh, uh, accompanies with it. Um, I want to say a range of of ten or more years in prison. And, and let's be clear that that knowingly or purposely uh, transmitting a, a virus is a, is a very serious offense and it should be treated seriously. But uh, the issue was that um, our, our criminal code as it compared to other criminal codes across the state was based on false assumptions and uh, it was out of line with uh, the, the standard uh, punishment that was, that was given for those crimes around the country. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Phil Cristofanelli. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Republican State Representative Phil Cristofanelli. Uh, he is a, represents a portion of St. Charles County in the Missouri House. So we're recording this on Thursday morning. Um, there is currently a special session going on right now involving the renewal of a critical tax known as the Federal Reimbursement Allowance, or FRA. 
Um, we're going to be talking about this issue fairly generally because by the time this podcast is released, there may be massive or not massive movement in the Missouri Senate about what exactly will be in it. I'll just ask you, though, generally, what's kind of your feeling about having to go back into special session to renew this very, very critical tax that if it's not renewed, could blow a billion plus hole in the budget, basically. Sure. Yeah. You know, I'm disappointed that we weren't able to get it done during the general session. Uh, I had a number of pieces of legislation that um, the FRA was placed on, uh, and we tried to move those at the end of session, but it just kept getting tied up for um, you know, various other people's uh, plans for, for that particular program. Uh, and so uh, we got down to the finish line. We weren't able to get it done. And uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, but, you know, we all signed up to be in the legislature. So can't complain too much uh, if we have to go back to work and, and finish something that we didn't get done in the first five months. So uh, I, I stand uh, ready and willing to take on uh, this, this challenge in the next uh, couple of weeks. And I'm confident that we're going to get the FRA passed. Uh, do you need to get that phone call? You know, it's Cody. We could just we could dial him in to the <laughs> to the podcast here as a surprise. He pr- probably wouldn't appreciate that. Yeah, right that now. by the way, that uh, the that is a uh, House Budget Chairman Cody Smith who has been on the podcast uh, recently, and I think that he was one of the people trying to get this FRA uh, thing done. The reason why the FRA was not done is there. There were senators, specifically senators, that wanted restrictions on Medicaid from from going towards certain types of contraception or Medicaid from going to Planned Parenthood for non-abortion-related services. And this is Senate Minority Leader John Rizzo. He's a Democrat from Independence, kind of providing some commentary on where we are now in, in, in politics in Missouri. This is about birth control because they have cut to the bone on all of their pro-life legislation for so long that there's literally nowhere left for them to go to get their pro-life street credibility uh, in their political uh, atmosphere. And they're all running in primaries now because Roy Blunt decided to retire in the middle of session, which, you know, good for him. Uh, I wish him well in his retirement. He served the state well for a long time. And, and all these congressional seats are opening up. Everyone's jockeying for a position in the Republican primaries in those congressional seats, if not for the U.S. Senate seat. And you have very powerful people that are, are, are doing that. What do you make of Senator Rizzo's comments? Well, you know, um, I think that it's uh, pro-life issues are something that is always going to come up in uh, Missouri politics, because I've found that that uh, they're one of the the top issues that get mentioned by constituents. Uh, when I go door to door, I hear about um, on both sides of the of the abortion debate um, a lot of a lot of interest in that issue. And uh, politicians tend to to respond to those pressures. Uh, and I I'm not surprised that um, that uh, pro life issues have have found their way into the FRA. Um, I, I, I think that uh, this is something that the Missouri legislature can work through, and they can work through in a way uh, that will be reasonable and, and come to a conclusion that maybe not everyone's happy with, but uh, 
is is still within the the mainstream of of what we're seeing around the rest of the country. Now, again, I just want to be very clear here. I don't know what the final outcome is going to be, and it may be decided when this show goes up. But I think that there are even some Republicans. I saw a tweet from State Representative Shemed Dogan saying that conflating contraception with abortion is fundamentally dishonest and you know, there were efforts before by Republicans to expand birth control to people. Um, what do you kind of make of that argument? Because I, I assume that Democrats are primarily going to be making that argument. But I wouldn't be surprised even if some Republican legislators are not super comfortable with the way this special session is going. Well, you know, I think it's based on a lot of assumptions. Um, th- this this bill is still in a very formative stage. And I think that there was a version uh, earlier in the general session that was written very broadly and did capture uh, a number of contraceptive uh, drugs and devices. Uh, but I don't necessarily know that that was the member's intent uh, when they drafted that that legislation, uh, and I've not spoken with them on the matter, so I don't know what their intent is. Uh, I don't believe that ultimately we're going to have an FRA that restricts contraception in any way. There may be, um, you know, a, a board of fashion drugs that are not going to be covered under the FRA, uh, and you know that is a very uh, a common restriction that exists in a number of other states. Uh, there may be a ban on uh, certain populations accessing Planned Parenthood facilities, uh, but that is also a, a very common restriction that, that exists in other states. I don't expect that there will be any restrictions placed on contraception in the FRA. And just to be clear, when we talk about restrictions on contraception, we're not talking about banning these for the general population. We're talking about whether Medicaid reimburses for them. I think that needs to be emphasized. But let's move on to a special session that will happen probably in the fall, maybe the winter. I, I, I asked Governor Parson when he said, I don't know. And we're talking about congressional redistricting. Um, I think that there are, there are two routes that congressional re- redistricting can take. One is the legislature creates a, a map that's reasonably similar to what we have now, where you have six safe Republican districts and two safe Democratic districts. There's also kind of talk about a seven to one map that kind of chops up the fifth district in Kansas City. And, you know, there are, there are people who feel like that is going to happen. And there are even some Republicans who are like, and eh, that could put other districts at risk. We're just going to keep Cleaver's district the same. Uh, with that as a backdrop, what are kind of your expectations for, for what happens uh, when you all come back from congressional redistricting? You know, it'll be interesting. Uh, I think that a lot of the the changes are probably going to be made over the Senate side just because the the structure of the body is more conducive to collaboration and compromise on an issue of this type. Um, In the House, there's going to be the House Redistricting Committee. They are going to uh, provide a map and it'll go to the House floor and, and get an up or down vote. It probably won't be changed very much on the floor. But in the Senate, you know, every senator has filibuster power, uh, and they're going to have to deal with with all of them. And um, there's probably going to be a lot of a lot of changes and compromises and deals made uh, over on the Senate side as it relates to redistricting. Obviously, this is an audio podcast, and and you can't really see me showing this phone to the representative, but. 
Uh, Dave Wasserman, who's a very famous political anal- analyst, he was circulating this map that, uh, that was called like the status quo map, which would keep the fifth district basically the same. I did see that. Yes, it, I, I, this doesn't have county lines on it, but this this would be a map that would have pretty much all of St. Charles in the second district. That's right. Uh, which I'm sure you would probably support as a St. Charles County Republican, but a lot of people, including a lot of St. Louis County Republicans, are not going to be super enthusiastic about this. How, how realistic do you think it would be to have a St. Charles County-based House district? Well, I, I think that uh, there are a lot of people that would like to see that happen. Uh, and, you know, I, it's really, it's it's been far too long uh, for St. Charles to go without a, a clear representation in Congress. Uh, we've been split and diced and sliced uh, for decade after decade after decade. Uh, and we are uh, one of the fastest growing areas in the state right now. Uh, we are where a lot of our economic activity is occurring. Uh, we are attracting people from not only other parts of Missouri, but other parts of the country to come and live in our state. And uh, you know, given our population numbers, it certainly makes sense that we'd be included all in one congressional district and uh, be able to elect someone of our choosing to Congress. Uh, but all these things are, are part of a political process. And, uh, you know, people are going to be making uh, all sorts of agreements uh, based off of their own, own political interests or their area's uh, political desires. And it's really hard to say how it's going to all turn out in the end. Do you think that Senator Anders' involvement in plunging the General Assembly into a special session, because he's been the sponsor of the amendment to bar Medicaid from reimbursing Planned Parenthood, do you think that some Republicans are super, super mad at him and may retaliate by making sure that a St. Charles County congressional district never even gets considered? You know, they're always mad at each other over in the Senate. Like, this is nothing new. It's, uh, I, I think that, you know, they get mad and then they realize that, oh, hey, we, we still have to work together. Uh, we still have a whole nother year session where, um, you know, any one senator can, can gum up the works. And so um, I think memories tend to be short uh, in the legislature. And while you may be enemies on uh, one day and one particular issue, uh, when it comes to the next issue, a lot of times you can put that aside and, and get to work on, on what's best for your constituents in the state. And so I'm confident that the Senate has the, the power and ability to do that uh, regardless of any sort of political controversy that may be uh, may exist at any given point in time in the past. So this is kind of an unprecedented situation. Um, I don't remember the last time that redistricting happened for congressional redistricting, and Republicans held the governorship and both houses of the legislature with supermajorities. I think, I mean, I'm sure it's happened maybe in the 1800s or something, but not in recent memory. So I, I, I've been pretty blunt about this. I don't think the Democrats are going to play any role in this. I mean, they may, but they have no leverage to do anything. But there are going to be people like State Representative Tracy McCreary who are going to try to use the bully pulpit to influence the process. This is what she had to say on a recent episode of Politically Speaking. It's no secret that Democrats are in the super minority in both the House and the Senate. But I truly believe that 
Missourians who are represented by Republicans are going to be communicating with their elected officials between now and when we have our special session on redistricting about the importance of making sure the maps are drawn fairly. So this is a this is about it's a not it's it should be a nonpartisan issue when you're out on in town it's a nonpartisan issue but communities want to be able to have choices when they go to vote they don't want the primary to be the only place where they vote for people you're probably going to hear that argument a lot from your democratic colleagues how what will be your response when you hear that you know um i think that they are underestimating their influence over the process um as i mentioned there are a number of democrat members of the missouri senate uh, they have unlimited filibuster power, um, and they have a lot of votes that they can offer to to various factions within the Republican Party that want one uh, map over another. And uh, they're going to be a part of the process, and they're going to be able to be heard and uh, have an impact on what our, our final maps are going to look like. They don't have the governor's office anymore, that's true, but uh, I, I don't think that that they are completely irrelevant, as as has been suggested. Yeah, and in fact, I'll 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 piggyback on that point a little bit. Um, if you go back in the last 20, 30, 40 years, there's actually been a pretty strong alliance between Republicans and Black Democrats to make sure the first district has either a majority or plurality African American population because. That ensures that there's a black congressperson out of St. Louis, but it also ensures that the second district is fairly Republican. So it kind of meets both of those interests. And also, like if there are Republicans that want to keep the fifth district Democratic to prevent the sixth or the fourth district from becoming more Democratic, that's another example of Democrats working together. Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of Democrats who are like, that's not the type of working together I want if I want competitive districts but is that kind of what you were referring to earlier or did I am I not reading between well, the no, lines correctly? I, I think I think that that's that's certainly a possibility of, of how it could play out um, the the Republican Party is certainly not a monolith and neither neither is the Democratic Party in the state of Missouri uh, there are different interests in different factions and sometimes those interests and factions overlap and align uh, across party lines uh, in the Capitol. And you're going to see a lot of that play out uh, over the course of redistricting. My final question for you, same as my final question for Representative McCreary, do you expect any other special sessions besides FRA and congressional redistricting? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of calls for special session. Uh, you know, after seeing them all, I placed a, a call of my own for any bill that I wasn't able to pass uh, in the general session. Still waiting to hear back from the governor's office as to whether we're going to do that one or not. But my guess is that uh, the two you listed are probably the only we do this year. Well, as much as I would have loved to cover 13 special sessions, we'll have to wait till 2022 to deal with some of the unfinished business. Representative, thank you so much for coming to St. Louis to, to record an episode of this show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri, St. Louis. You can read all of our stories at stlpr.org and follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? At PHL Christo on Twitter, and uh, I'm on Facebook, too. Just Google my name. Thank you very much, and until next time, so long.
from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.